we keep making our way through Luke's gospel. Last week, we saw the Pharisees asking their question about Caesar challenging Jesus' authority. Today, we will see the Sadducees asking a question about the resurrection, mocking Jesus' belief and authority. And as we read this passage and think about what it has to say for us today, there's some things that I want you to be on the lookout for. First of all, I want you to see how important doctrine and theology is for Jesus. So often you hear arguments about doctrine not being important or as important as loving people or serving people, but Jesus here demonstrates that a belief in doctrine actually shapes our life. It shapes how we love and serve those around us. Secondly, and this relates to the first, I want you to notice how seriously Jesus takes the Scripture. Though debated or taken lightly by most people today, there was no question in Jesus' mind that Moses was indeed the author of the first five books of the Bible. That those were not just books written by Moses, but they came from God as well. Along with that, notice that Jesus doesn't just argue from big picture realities for his theology as well. He gets down to the very words of Scripture, the very tense of the verbs in Scripture, seeing them as essential and important. The theology that he teaches is based on grammar, and that should affect how we read and interpret the Bible. Finally, I want you to be on the lookout for how this doctrine of the resurrection is vital if we are to live the Christian life. The resurrection gives us hope for loved ones that have gone on before us in death as well as courage now for uncertain times. It reframes our priorities in this life by giving us a clear vision of the glories awaiting us in the future. With that kind of um, preparatory expectation of what to see, let's look to our passage this morning as we see Jesus emphasizing the importance of the resurrection. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 27. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. Likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the women be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? May God bless the reading of his inspired and errant word. 
This passage opens up with the focus on a group that we've not heard anything about this far in Luke's gospel, a group named the Sadducees. So as we begin, we want to understand who are these people and why are they coming to challenge Jesus. Much like the Pharisees, the Sadducees were a sect of first century Judaism. Much unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees were aristocratic and enjoyed political power in Israel. Moreover, they sharply disagreed with much of what the Pharisees believed in. For example, whereas the Pharisees wanted to overthrow Roman oppressors, the Sadducees wanted to cooperate with the Romans in order to preserve their political power. Religiously, the Pharisees followed the traditions and regulations of their forefathers alongside Scripture, whereas the Sadducees were much narrower in their approach, much more literal in their interpretation of the law of Moses. But they tended to exalt the law of Moses. They tended to to lift up and put on a pedestal the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as being more important than the rest of the Old Testament. And from these things then they came to deny the existence of the soul beyond death or any idea of a future resurrection of the body. In fact, this is the one concern that defines them more than anything else among their people at this time. The Sadducees were those who deny the resurrection, thereby doing away, sweeping away all of the Bible's teaching about heaven, about hell, about judgment, and the life to come. And as many modern commentators have said, this is why they're so sad, you see? Now, you laugh and it's a bit cheesy, but you won't forget what the Sadducees denied now, will you, right? Now, you have to understand, all of this is hanging in the background when it comes to the question that they're asking Jesus. The question that they ask about the seven brothers and the one bride is something based on what we find in the book of Deuteronomy, something that has come to be known today as leveret marriage, the word lever or lever being the Latin term for brother. Here's what we read in Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Instead, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Now, there's more about the ins and outs of how that works. You can go and read that this afternoon if you want, but the point here is twofold. First of all, God was ensuring the preservation of Israel's tribal bloodlines, but secondly, he was seeking to protect a widow who may die without any resources, without any children that would look after her. In this way, someone would be there to watch over her. Now, even in Jesus' day, Deuteronomy 25 was common practice in Israel. It was expected. And yet the Sadducees took this command of mercy in Deuteronomy and crafted an illustration that reduced it to the level of absurdity. One woman who is married to seven different brothers and has no children with any of them, the chances of something like that happening were absolutely astronomically remote. So why did they create that kind of scenario? They created that kind of scenario because they're coming to Jesus in such a way so as to mock him and his belief in the resurrection of the dead. But Jesus is not threatened by their mocking. Jesus is not threatened by their ridicule. In fact, in responding to their question shows their foolishness for denying the clearly taught doctrine of the resurrection of the dead 
even for us today, Jesus shows how that doctrine here gets to the very heart of the gospel itself. So what Jesus is explaining in this important doctrine from even the Old Testament is not just something to put the Sadducees in their place. It's not just something to, uh, to, to kind of score a point or to vindicate the beliefs of Israel, but he gets to the point of the gospel and shows why even for Christians, the doctrine of the resurrection is essential. So what does he say? First, he begins by giving us a description of the resurrection life. That's what we want to see in verses 34 through 36, the description of resurrection life. Although people often talk about heaven, and, and Christians in particular talk about the future resurrection of the, the new creation of, a, of the new heaven and earth, uh, the Bible is actually very scant about giving us detailed information about what those things are actually going to be like. Uh, they give us enough that we have a big picture theology. We know what is true and what is right. It is repeated often enough that we know it's important. But what, but what is the nitty-gritty actually going to look like? Well, frankly, we don't really know. And yet Jesus here uh, dips in a little bit more clearly than some other places and gives us some idea. In answering the question, Jesus says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that is the age to come, the age to come, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so here as Jesus describes this resurrection life, he first describes it as a life of eternal satisfaction. A life of eternal satisfaction. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Why? He asserts that is normative. Why? Because that's how God designed it. I mean, if you read the scriptures, it is clear that God has designed that under the normal course of life, men and women will marry, will come together in marriage. And Jesus is demonstrating the fundamental goodness, the rightness of that practice. The very first wedding ceremony took place in the Garden of Eden. God brought the first man, the first woman together, and in the simplest, shortest, most profound sermon in any wedding, directed they were now one flesh, they ought to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. And that has become the pattern for marriage for all of humanity ever since. At the same time, Scripture also wants to show that marriage in this life points to something beyond itself. In other words, marriage was not given to humanity just for the sake of marriage. It is given to humanity to teach us about something even greater. He says that those in the resurrection neither marry or are given a marriage. Now, why is that? Because of why God gave marriage in the first place. Now, first of all, it was his ordained means of having humans procreate. Uh, unless, unless issues... Um, uh, because of our bodies not working the way they're designed, prevent married couples from fulfilling their first uh, command and obligation given to humanity, make babies, then, uh, then that's what we should do, is seek to be married and make babies. And if you can't do that, if, uh, if that privilege is not there, then we should follow God's own example and adopt babies that others do not want. But marriage is about more than just making babies. Marriage is about more than just being fruitful and multiplying. Marriage is also the wonderful means whereby two people come together in a way more intimate than any other in this life. And it's that aspect of marriage specifically that points beyond itself. In the age to come, when people die, there's no need to perpetuate a name. There's no need to subdue the earth. There's no need for the procreation. But more than that, Marriage ceases because marriage is a future, it's a parable of a future marriage that is coming between Christ and the church. And in the age to come, that parable will be fulfilled. 
That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He explains how husbands and wives are meant to relate. And he says, at the end of the day, you understand, this is a profound mystery. But I'm not actually talking about your marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And it's not, so, so Paul is not saying, well, let me think of a good analogy for husbands. Yeah, be, be like Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying marriage is designed after a previous pattern. Just like Moses was taken up on, on Sinai and said, here's how you make the temple after this pattern, after this image. And Hebrew says that pattern, that image was Christ. And so the temple was designed for, uh, based on what he was going to do and be and, and achieve for his people. So he says marriage is designed after the pattern of redemption, of the love that Christ will have for his bride. So you, you think about before time began in the way that we know it before the creation order as God in his wisdom is thinking through creating the universe about creating people knowing they're going to rebel against him and fall into sin and he has a choice will he or will he not redeem and he says yes we will redeem a people for himself and what will that cost be it will be the the satisfaction of my wrath and the cost of the life of my own son how can I prepare people to understand what embracing that redemption will be like, what joy, what glory will come when they, annoy, when they know and enjoy eternal satisfaction in a, in a new creation in heaven and earth with me. What, what that, what that non-ever end, with that ever-ending, or excuse me, unending, forever love will be like, he says, I'll create marriage. I'll create man, man, male and female, and I will design for them to come together as one flesh. And the joy and satisfaction that comes through a shared life and sexual intimacy that is reserved for marriage will point, will hint, will just be a glimpse at the bliss and the joy and the intimacy that awaits all of God's people, raised from the dead to life eternal forever in His presence. Marriage, therefore, is wonderful, but marriage is temporary. Now, for some people, when they think about this, they have a, a, have a hard time thinking through that because they have wonderful marriages. And they think, well, how, how, how can I not be married to this person forever, 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 forever? Well, think about this. Think about how much more you will be able to love that individual to whom you're married now in the life to come when you will not have a life stained by sin. Even the best marriages suffer because of sin. In the life to come, there is no sin. There is no threat, no hint of sin. As people fully empowered by God's Spirit, we will only have perfect divine expressions of love for one another. So even not being married, we will be able to love one another better than we could possibly love people today. So eternal satisfaction is one way that Jesus describes the resurrection life. But secondly, he says we will also experience eternal sonship. Jesus says that God's people who experience the resurrection of the dead cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God, even the sons of the resurrection. Now, equality with angels does not mean we actually become angels. I would say in the midst of a funeral when someone is grieving and they say, well, they've gone and become one of God's angels now, it is not the time for a theological discussion. Okay, just weep with those who weep. But at the same time, mentally say, no, they don't become angels. That's not what God says. In fact, angels are a distinct creation from the beginning. As he creates the, 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 the sun and moon and stars and all of the, the heavenly glories, so he also creates angels. They are, in fact, inferior to us. You say, how can they be inferior? Look at all the things they can do. Yeah, but they are inferior because we are created in the very image of God and they are not. 
we are God's image bearers and therefore are superior to them. And yet, and yet they do enjoy something that we do not and we will one day enjoy and that is to be alive forever in God's glorious presence. Those who experience the resurrection in this passage are those who experience salvation. They have experienced adoption as God's son, as, as God's sons, and that sonship never ends. Because part of our equality to the angels will be a reflecting, a shining off of the glory of God as we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, we will dwell forever in his presence with no threat of sin or death to undermine the joy of life with him. But I think what is probably the most glorious, the most compelling for me thought about eternal sonship is the fact that a father is meant to love his sons. And even if in this life we do it imperfectly, maybe we do it not at all, God is not like a human father. And therefore, part of the, the, the glory of heaven is that God is the very fountain of true, unending, perfect love and will continually pour out that affection upon us, his people. So you think for a minute, you close your eyes if you want to, but you think for a minute that that moment, that one moment, whatever it is, maybe it was when you walked down the marriage aisle, maybe it was when you held uh, a child or each of your children right after birth, but you think about that moment where you either felt the most loving towards another or the most loved by someone else. You hold that in your mind and then you magnify that by a million and set it in the course of all eternity and we begin to get a hint of the affection that will be shown to us by God as his children forever. And as we are on the receiving end of that love, a love that was demonstrated supremely by the shed blood of Christ, so we will reflect back that love in unending, ever-deepening ways towards God and so and towards one another. It's why Edwards called, Jonathan Edwards called heaven a world of love. Jesus presents a far more compelling vision of the life to come than what the Sadducees had in their mind. In their mind, the minds of even skeptics today, the, the eternal life is just this life going longer. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It is so much more than that. It is beyond your wildest imaginations. It is a life of eternal satisfaction and eternal sonship with God. But how do we know it's true? How do we know that that's what the resurrection life is like? Well, here Jesus shows us now the assurance. He gives to us the assurance of resurrection life. The assurance of resurrection life. For many years, some liberal scholars have debated whether or not the Old Testament itself contained any teaching about the resurrection or if the Old Covenant saints even believed in such a thing. Um, I think two things should be said in response. First of all, precisely because the Sadducees are known for their lack of a belief in the resurrection points to the fact it was actually common in Israel to believe in a resurrection. But more than that, let's go to the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Let's, let's think about how though we have greater clarity in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, there was the expectation of a resurrection. Just consider a few of these verses. Psalm 73, 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In this life, you direct my steps. When this life is done, then you will receive me to yourself. Psalm 16, 9 through 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. My flesh, my human body dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will redeem my soul and my flesh, the psalmist says. 
Isaiah 26, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn away, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. One more, Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Those are sweet and precious truths that have a more a, a fuller explanation and fulfillment when we realize how God is going to produce that kind of resurrection. The sad thing is the Sadducees would have not cared a lick about any of those things because all of those verses fall outside the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus, very wisely, draws his response directly from those books that the Sadducees cherish most. And with great authority and wisdom, he says, look, you should know there's a resurrection for two reasons. First of all, you know God's people. You know God's people. Listen to what he says in verse 37 and following. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Now, if you wonder about that expression in the part about the bush, remember in Jesus' day, there's no chapters or verses in the Bible. So if you want to get someone's attention, get them thinking about something, you either quote a very famous bit or, or pick out some imagery and say, you remember that, that part, right? So for today, talking with some of my friends, it would be like, you remember the part with the Ewoks? Immediately, you know what movie, where in the movie I'm talking about, and, and, and we're good to go, right? And so Jesus likewise says, hey, remember, remember in the part about the bush? Remember when, when Moses is receiving his call from God to be the redeemer that, that will take his people Israel out of Egypt? Do you remember that part? Even there we see the resurrection being taught. What's going on in that passage? It's in Exodus 3. And, and, and God has determined that Moses is going to be the redeemer for Israel out of the Exodus. He'll be his mouthpiece. He'll be the one to execute judgment on Egypt. And so he reveals his glory through a bush that is blazing on fire but is not consumed. And as Moses draws near to see what it's all about, God speaks from that bush revealing himself to Moses. What does he say? In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now think about the argument that Jesus is making here. In that passage, the Lord did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he is, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In order for that to be true, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all need to be alive. When God says, I am, he's not simply making an assertion about himself, but about his people as well. The Lord is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In God's presence, in paradise, were the souls of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, still alive, though they had been dead for hundreds of years. The point is that those who have trusted God, those who have walked with him, those that have banked their lives on him and his promises will find themselves in his presence upon death, not white from existence as if they were never there or ever mattered. So Jesus is taking these people right into the very heart of the Old Testament's theology. 
But even behind Jesus' clear teaching here about the the verbal tense of the the state of God's people with God himself, he also shows us the underlying reality and assurance of God's promises. Of God's promises. The story from Moses' call, the burning bush, is a pivotal point in the history of redemption and in the theology of the law that we see. For the call of Moses and God's promise to be with him and power to liberate his people is based on God's covenant fidelity. The fact that he's going to keep his promises. You see, God had already made promises. He'd entered into covenant. He had committed himself upon threat of death. God said, if I do not fulfill these things, then let me be destroyed. He made those kinds of promises to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob about a people that he would redeem and bring to himself. And in Exodus 2, Israel finds itself in Egypt, and now the man who brought them there, one of Jacob's sons, nobody knows about him anymore. Though he was second only to Pharaoh, it's been long enough that nobody knows about him anymore. But they're looking around at all these Hebrews who still knew from their traditions, be fruitful and multiply, and they're saying they're growing in numbers so much, they're going to raise up and take over the country. So let's enslave them. Let's put them in irons and put them to work for us. Let's subjugate them so they're no longer a threat. They remember the command and God had blessed them, but they don't remember God anymore. And so they're crying out to any God that will listen that they might be freed from their enslavement. And Moses writes in Exodus chapter 2 that God heard and God remembered. God heard their cries, their pleas for mercy, and he remembered his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Though they were long dead and the promises were not yet fulfilled, they were alive in spirit and God's promise was not going to fail. And so he was going to continue to work to bring about their fulfillment. And how would he do that? By raising up Moses that they might be pulled out of Egypt, brought to the promised land, given a law, having God's affection set upon them that in fulfillment of the promise of Abraham, all the nations of the earth might be blessed through them. Now as we continue on throughout the history of redemption, we see all those promises had an even greater fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But Jesus' point is, God is not a God of, dead, a God of the dead, but of the living. He will continue to fulfill his promises to his people because they are still alive. If not in this life, then with him and in his presence. We've seen the description of resurrection life and have been given the assurance of resurrection life. Finally, we need to see the Lord of resurrection life. The Lord of resurrection life. The Pharisees and Sadducees have asked their questions now. It's Jesus' turn to ask all of them a question of his own. And this question at first might seem obscure, but it actually gets to the very heart of his authority and the salvation that he brings. For this moment, it couldn't have been a more important question that he asked them. In verse 41, Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Now, Matthew gives us more of the story. If we go to Matthew's account, he says, he actually begins by asking this question, who do they say Whose son do they say is the Christ? And they reply, David's son. Everybody knows that. And so now Luke picks it up there. How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? 
Now the question is about the identity of the Messiah, about the Christ. Who would this promised Savior be? What would he be like? And here Jesus brings out three descriptions of this promised Christ. First of all, he is a sovereign Christ. He is a sovereign Christ. Jesus starts with that thing which is familiar to everyone in Israel, namely that the Savior, the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would be a descendant of David. He would be David's son. Once again, it's a matter of God keeping his promises. And this time it's from 2 Samuel 7, where unlike Saul, King Saul, the first king in Israel who had the kingdom torn from him because of his lack of faith, God promises David that I'll never tear the kingdom from you. Your house, your descendants will always rule over Israel. More than that, the promised Messiah would come from your line, David. You will have a son whose kingdom will last forever. He will be the Christ. And throughout the New Testament, but especially in Luke's gospel, in those early chapters, they hammered home, Jesus is a son of David. Jesus is a son of David. He is from the tribe and the line of David's descendants. This is one of those, those, those persistent themes that wants to show and validate Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah from the kingly line of David. And he is the sovereign whose kingdom will not end. Jesus is the promised king. He's a sovereign Christ, but he's also, secondly, a superior Christ. A superior Christ. And this is really the heart of Jesus' question here. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. And if you go and read that psalm this afternoon or this week, hint, hint, you will see that this is a psalm that's all about the Christ. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the promised Savior that's going to come. But there's also a, uh, a bit of an ambiguity here if we're not careful. If you look at the... Um, If you go back into the Old Testament and you'll actually look at Psalm 110, the English Bible will have printed this verse differently. The first Lord who says to David's Lord is going to be in all caps because they are translating the divine name, Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord. He says, I am that I am, it is Yahweh. So it's Yahweh says to my Lord. That makes more sense. They won't do it in English because when, when when the New Testament writers are writing in Greek and they're quoting from the Old Testament, everything they write is in all caps, Okay. So that's why they don't show that in this. But if you go back to Psalm 110, you'll see that clearly. So again, here's what Jesus is asking the question. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now we see more clearly. God, Yahweh, is saying to Christ, saying to the promised Savior, that he is going to make his enemies to be a footstool for him. Brilliant. But here's the real problem begins. David's the one writing that. And we know that the Christ is going to be a descendant from David. And in this cultural context, one's descendants are always inferior to you. So David was only king of Israel, but it's his descendant that's coming. So David is saying, my Lord to him. In what context would David ever call someone else a Lord besides God? He should never do that culturally. It doesn't make any sense. There's no one greater than him in Israel. And yet, that's exactly what he's doing. He's calling his descendant the Christ Lord, thereby acknowledging that his own descendant, his son, is actually going to be greater than him. And this is the reality. They don't know. They don't understand. They would have worked hard to try and figure out how do these things connect because even the Pharisees believe the Bible did not contradict itself. But how is it that David could say to his son, he is my Lord, and address him as a superior? Well, here's what Jesus knew that they didn't know. Namely, that when the Christ came, 
when the Savior came, he would not be a mere man, but would be divine. When you look to the prophets, you have the promise of the redemption of God's people. And sometimes it's David's coming. Sometimes it's David's son is coming. Sometimes it's God's coming. And you say, what, you know, who is coming? And, and, as, and as the progress of Revelation continues, suddenly it's, it's the, the kingliness of David, but it's revealed a descendant of David, and, and suddenly you realize that what is coming is a descendant of David that is a king like no other because he is fully God and fully man. In other words, Jesus is that promised Christ, and he is superior in every way than to his father David. He was God in the flesh, the very image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And as that God-man, Jesus would be the Christ who would save a people from his sin. That's the last thing we want to see this morning. Jesus is not only a sovereign and a superior Christ, but he is a saving Christ. He is a saving Christ. This passage revolves uh, around the Sadducees' question about the resurrection. But did you notice that Jesus does not describe a general resurrection? He doesn't describe what is described elsewhere, and that is at the end of time, everyone will be raised back to life. Even, even what we read from the Old Testament. Some will go on from Daniel. Some will go on to uh, everlasting life, others to everlasting condemnation. But what Jesus described was those who were considered worthy to attain to God's resurrection. That's what he says in verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead. Friends, this is justification language. The only person that can truly be counted worthy of the resurrection is Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who perfectly kept all of God's commands. Coming into this world as the promised Christ, he obeyed his father in every way, displaying his righteous character. That's not us. In fact, when we come into this world, we display our rebellious character. As parents, we teach our children by saying yes and by saying no, and it's not long before they're saying no back. You go to change your, your daughter's diaper at six months and she smacks your hand away because she doesn't want to have her diaper changed. I didn't teach that to her. Adam and Eve taught that to her. It's her sinful nature, her corruption revealing itself even in her rebellion there. Left to ourselves, therefore, Scripture is quite honest when it says there's none that's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short the glory of God. There is no way that left to ourselves we will be counted worthy of the resurrection. But when we look outside of ourselves to Jesus, when we depend on Him to be the Christ, to be our Savior from the penalty of our sinful defiance, then God's Spirit unites our life to His life. By faith, we are counted as one with Christ and His righteousness is counted as our own. Therefore, in Him, in Jesus, we are able to be considered worthy of the age to come in eternal life with God. Now, if the, if the Sadducees are right and there's no resurrection, then Christ is a sham and there's no salvation. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no such thing as the sons of the resurrection and, and, and frankly, there's no such thing as Christ. There's no reality of salvation and we should all just go out here and, and live however we want because it's all a waste. But if Jesus is truly the Lord of the resurrection, that is, he himself has died, he himself has come back to life as the first fruits of the promise of what is to come, then salvation is true. And it's found only in Him. Because Christ is raised, we know that we too will be raised if we have faith in Him. After Jesus answered the Sadducees' question, Luke tells us that some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask Him any question. 
What about us? This morning, can we see wisdom in Jesus' words? Can we, can we see enough to give us confidence in his authority, to trust in his care, to put our faith in that he is the Lord of the resurrection, he is the only Savior, and that in him we too will be raised? Just as Jesus once said to a woman named Martha, so he says to all of us today, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Father, I pray that as we think about Jesus' words, that indeed we do believe that. That we do believe that he is the resurrection and the life. The Father, as we think about how he has unfolded for us what the future holds and the consequences of not believing it, that Father, we will believe it that we will not trust in ourselves and our goodness and our merit. Father, all the things that the world tells us to put our faith and confidence in, who we are and what we can accomplish. But Father, we will look to Jesus and see who He is and what He has accomplished for us. And that, Father, whether we come to faith for the first time in Him or whether we are strengthened in our faith to, to glorify Him with our lives, to live in ways that magnify Him and honor Him because we have this confidence that this life is not all there is. We don't need to pursue the vain things of this life, but there is a life to come that will be far superior to anything in this one. And Father, let us look to him in faith today. We ask all this in his name. Amen.